Welcome to the Experience Christian Church Message Podcast. We are a church startup based out of Exton, Pennsylvania, committed to giving the community a fresh start with God and with church. Our mission is to help people experience God's love in a practical way. We would love to connect with you. Would you text ECC info to 94000 or go to our website, experiencecc.org for more information and to learn how you can be a part of our community. Enjoy today's message. In 1997, Fred Rogers won a Lifetime Achievement Award and his speech was so endearing because he directed the attention towards the individuals that helped him become the kind of person that could win that award in the first place. He then encouraged the audience to reflect on the individuals that got them to where they are in life. Here's a one-minute section of the video you can find online. So many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here. Some are far away. Some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take along with me, 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are. Those who have cared about you and wanted what was best for you in life. 10 seconds of silence. I'll watch the time. whomever you've been thinking about, how pleased they must be to know the difference you feel they've made. What a brilliant exercise. Who was it that came to your mind? Was it a teacher or a coach or a friend? My assumption is the person that came to your mind was encouraging, but also challenging to you. That person saw your potential, pushed you to achieve it. I bet they helped you become beyond what you saw possible in yourself. Another question that he asked was, is that person still in your life? Maybe there's someone in the room with you today. Maybe they're far away or maybe they have passed on. Well, it's exciting to know that you and I can still become the kind of person for others that Mr. Rogers was talking about. Let me tell you, this world is in need of that kind of encouragement, right? People that are willing to pour into others, to see value in others and push them towards a greater future. When his book, A Different Kind of Tribe, the author shared some insights that I think about often when it comes to relationships. And the book is, is basically a call for small group ministry in churches. And what he shares is, he says, the author is sharing that due to the highly transient nature of society, we end up moving away from relatives and close friends. And the result is shallow relationships that are unable to challenge us and to help us grow. The book cited that the average U.S. resident will move a total of 16 times over their lifetime, about once every five years. And that not many people will spend face-to-face time consistently with someone that they've known for even a decade. Here was a precise quote that he said. He says, we exist in short-time friendships to feel connected, but we are seldom known well enough to be called upon to confront our inner demons or to be reminded of and encouraged to accomplish our greatest dreams. You know, the rest of the book, again, is a calling to develop deep and meaningful relationships within the context of the church. And I think that's a smart place to find these kind of relationships. But even in church, they don't happen automatically. Today, our topic is to experience community. And this series is calling us to look back at our vision, mission, and values as a church community. In week one, we looked at our mission to help people experience God's love. 
And what drives that mission is the core belief that God loves every one of us, no exceptions. This isn't an original idea that we came up with. We said this is spelled out in one of the most common and popular verses in the Bible, and that's John 3.16. In it, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You know, this world means that God loves you, as well as everyone else in the world. We discussed in week one, it's beautiful to think about loving others, but it's painful at times living this out when we don't always see everyone as lovable, right? That's why last week we focused on the grace. And grace is simply defined as unmerited favor. We looked at Jesus' most famous parable, the story about two rebellious children and one loving father. Grace is the reason we're accepted by God. We don't earn it, we receive it. Grace is why we accept and love others. Not because they earn it, but God commands us to love them. And the command's a good thing because we realize that's how people change. That's how we see good in the world is through love. So this week, as we unpack community, I want you to reflect on this statement. It takes people to make people sick, and it takes people to make people well. Yes, we can agree with Mr. Rogers and see the benefit of being in loving relationships, but each of us has experienced the sting, or let me say pain, of relationships that went south. Pain causes some of us to wall up, to not let others get too close. They would rather be alone than risk being hurt or rejected again. I'll tell you about a time when I blew it big time and hurt a friend. It was back in 2008, and my family and I, we had just moved to Maryland from Pennsylvania, and a guy I was close to, he offered to paint me a canvas as I was going away in 2008. This guy is quite an artist, and he only takes time to paint on special occasions. It was an honor for him to ask me if I wanted one of his paintings, and he busted his butt. He took over 40 hours to complete it, and it was like two and a half feet by six feet, and I'd moved to Maryland, and he had called me to let me know it was finished, and I could come pick it up. He was ecstatic and couldn't wait for me to see it. The problem was for us finding the time to make the two-hour trip up here. It's not that far, but when life's hectic and crazy, it's hard to make that time. It occasionally isn't. We scheduled a time to come up. It was for a month later. But as the time came close, we canceled it, and I couldn't make it. We then rescheduled for a month later. We made it to Pennsylvania, but we stayed too long at the previous person's house, and I had to call him and said, hey, I can't make it over. I'm sorry. I'm going to have to reschedule. He asked me, can't you just come over and grab it real quick? And I told him, I'd love to, but I just can't make it. What I didn't know is that painting had been in his home for months. It was his favorite painting that he ever created. Friends would come over and they would check it out and say, man, I love that painting. Can I buy it? And he'd explain to them, no, it's not for sale. It's from our friend Matt. But I got a call a few days later after telling him I couldn't make it. And he said to me, Matt, I've got to be honest with you. I don't think you deserve this painting. I poured my heart and soul into this thing and I don't think you care about it at all. And he was right. I didn't deserve it. And in that moment, I knew it. I can still remember how it felt to hear him say those words. I thought he was calling me to reschedule, not tell me that I wasn't going to get the picture. If you've had a hard truth shared to you by a friend, you know how that kind of conversation goes, right? It leaves you feeling sick. There's a weight to it. This morning, we're going to look at a few texts from the book of John. This is the fourth book of the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle John. He was one of Jesus' closest followers, and he was an eyewitness. In chapter 1, John describes Jesus this way. He says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those words, grace and truth, that's what Jesus embodied. And grace, like we shared last week, is unmerited favor. It's being accepted despite our shortcomings and failures. It's how tax collectors and sinners find themselves eating and hanging close to Jesus. It's how young sons, like we talked about last week, 
are given extravagant parties when they return home. In older sons, grace is how they're accepted despite being judgmental and not wanting to see the younger siblings brought back into the family. Grace reflects Jesus' loving nature. Truth equally reflects Jesus' nature and emphasizes his holiness. Truth is when Jesus calls Matthew and the other tax collectors sick and in need of a doctor. Truth is Jesus' commands that keep us from harm and enable us to love one another well. Read through the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew and you'll see just how truth is carried out. It says we should avoid being angry, looking lustfully at other people. The bar is very high when it comes to truth. The tension between these two realities and Jesus is really simple yet inherently complex. It's like, so Jesus, your grace means I don't have to be perfect for us to be in a relationship. Yes, I love you, Jesus would say. So I can do whatever I want? No, obey my commands. This mystery is also how we manage our relationships with the community. Grace allows us to share imperfections and find encouragement from one another. Truth allows us to challenge one another, and it keeps us from falling further into sinful and destructive patterns. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus extends grace and truth to someone that found themselves very isolated and needed both grace and truth. Let's go to John chapter 4 now. It reads this way. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. This starts off this chapter this way. John is telling us that Jesus was gaining popularity from his teachings. With popularity came attention, with attention came scrutinization, and with scrutiny came fear from the religious teachers that felt threatened by Jesus' notoriety. The Pharisees were the influential religious leaders of the time. They followed the rules. They had their traditions. And as a group, they were doing a lot of the right things, but they were doing these things for the wrong reasons. They did not like the influence Jesus was having on the crowd, so they felt threatened by him. So they were coming up with a plan to get rid of him. However, the time had not yet come, so Jesus needed to get out of Judea, and he headed towards Galilee. That's where we pick up in verse 4. And it says, now he had to go through Samaria. You know, going through Samaria wasn't the preferred route for most religious Jews. Although easier, it would take them through a region of mountains inhabited by a people that the Jews had a long history of opposition and conflict with. There was an alternative route that was many times preferred in order to avoid the people of Samaria. The phrase had to go could have many meanings due to saving time, or it could have been due to a divine appointment. We're not really sure. But in verse 5 we pick up, it says, So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now this well, Jacob's well, had some historical significance for both Jews and Samaritans. If you ever went to Sunday school, this may sound familiar. Father Abraham had many sons. One son was Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was the guy who wrestled with God and had his name changed to Israel. Jacob's 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. So this place had history and meaning to those people. Two little things, Jesus was tired. These moments are important to capture because John wanted us to understand Jesus' humanity. If you read the book of John, you see plenty of times where he portrays all Jesus' divinity. But he also likes to highlight parts of his humanity, like he was tired. So here we have Jesus sitting down because he was feeling fatigued from his journey. This is a reminder that Jesus understands how we feel as humans. The second thing we point out, it says it was noon. This was the hot time of the day. This was peak sun. So here you have the setting. Jesus is tired, he's resting, and he's a foreigner in a strange city. 
Verse 7, it says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Verse 8, it says, His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This is really awkward with a ton of cultural things going on. She was from a different place, Samaria. Sometimes it's just awkward to talk with someone when you do not share a lot of commonality. It can be really difficult when you're in two totally different spheres of places. She was from Samaria. This is a history of wars and separation and hatred between Jews and Samaritans. The normal emotion felt when they came across one another would be disdain. They also had very different religious beliefs. Religious beliefs. Jews and Samaritans both had a religious belief system. However, these beliefs were in conflict with one another on several fronts. Another barrier, she was a woman. Men and women did not speak to one another in public. Oftentimes, even if they were married, I won't ask your opinion on that, but not only did they not speak to one another, they typically didn't even acknowledge one another. They would literally look past one another in this kind of setting. There was also a moral issue going on here. Getting water for the household was determined to be women's work. It was tough work, it was normal work, and because all women typically did this together, it became a social thing. That we do this necessary chore together and make it enjoyable. It was done either early in the morning or late evening to avoid the heat. But this woman, she came at noon. So why would she do there alone at noon? Well, she either didn't want to be with the other women or the other women didn't want to be with her. Either way, the implication was obvious. She was rejected by her own people. Even at this well, in her own land, she was as much of an outsider as Jesus was. So in this scene, we have Jesus intentionally engaging with someone who normally isn't seen. She would be invisible to a Jewish teacher, and she's seemingly invisible to her own community. And yet Jesus is choosing to interact with her. This would be a strange occurrence on a regular guy for, to do on a regular day. This would be off limits to a religious leader like Jesus. It's not only surprising that Jesus would ask her for a drink, it's surprising that he would talk to her at all. And yet, in verse 10, it says Jesus asked her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Here Jesus is talking about an earthly thing, living water, and teaching a kingdom or heavenly reality. When he does this, Jesus wants to talk about the kingdom of God language, and that's what he's trying to use here. When she hears living water, she's thinking about flowing water, as in a stream, a spring, or a river. It was the highest quality water available to them because it took away impurities. She would have known about all the water in the area. She would have known the topography of the land, and she would have known exactly where this kind of water would be found. Yet here is Jesus, a foreigner, coming to her well, a well she's used her whole life, and saying that he can produce living water. I don't think she's buying it. In verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. That's when Jesus gave her the secret formula to Gatorade. Just kidding. That's a terrible joke. But he is talking about a thirst quencher. Jesus is really mixing an earthly and heavenly language here. He's talking about serious thirst quenching, but not human thirst, a deep soul level thirst. 
She couldn't understand this language. She's thinking she won't need to drink physical water again, but Jesus is referring to a thirst of the soul, a thirst that only God can quench. We all know what it's like to try to quench a thirst or appetite, right? Appetites are never satisfied. You're about to experience the Super Bowl of eating this Thursday, right? The Thanksgiving meal. It's full of turkey and stuffing. Think about all the things you want to have to eat. The day's kind of predictable, isn't it? You show up at the person's house who's preparing the meal. You smell the aroma of food. Your appetite starts to get crazy. You can't wait to eat this meal. You sneak in the kitchen. You nibble a little bit. You probably get in trouble. You're not supposed to do that yet. Then you'll eat until you have no room left. But despite being so full, you'll think you'll never eat again. You'll go back and you'll have leftovers. Then on Friday, you'll have more leftovers. On Saturday, again, you'll have leftovers. And that's how appetites work. You never get enough. Appetites can never be satisfied. In a spiritual sense, Jesus is describing the soul-level itch we can't seem to scratch. It's what drives us to do silly things we later regret. Things that we say we'll never do again because we know they're not fulfilling, but sometimes we go back to. We get embarrassed. We feel shame. It's exactly the kind of thing she's been doing. In verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. She said, I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Well, the conversation just got really awkward. You know, Jesus just called this woman out on the thing that caused her to be separated from the village. It's why she was alone. She, I'm sure, felt mortified. She went to the well alone at noon, so she didn't have to deal with people harassing her about her lifestyle. And now Jesus, who she never met before, is calling her out on it. You know what the statement is like, right? Well, Jesus is a doctor and he's trying to heal her. It's surgery. Jesus is cutting into her and using the truth as his scalpel. Notice the phrase, the fact is, he says, quite true. These kind of statements are exacting. Two weeks ago, we discussed the calling of Levi and Jesus told the Pharisees that he came for the sick, not the righteous. And this was her sickness, the habit that was making her sick. These words weren't said to harm her or to hurt her. They were said to heal her. This is the truth that she needed to hear. This is the thing that she's been turning to, to quench her thirst rather than God. She was turning to men. And before you judge her too harshly, think for a moment. What would Jesus have to say to you in that moment? What have you been drinking to try and satisfy your thirst? What would Jesus ask you to confront in your own life? Maybe it's like hers. Relationships distract you from God. Maybe it's the way you talk to your kids. It's anger. Maybe it's the things you look at on your phone. You say, I'll never do it again, and you find yourself doing it the next day. Maybe it's the way you talk to someone who's not your spouse and a way to get affection. Maybe it's the way you spend your money. You just try to buy things to meet that need. Maybe it's that car you drive. You like how it makes you look. Maybe Jesus would say to you, I know you haven't forgiven your parents for the way they treated you. Maybe he would say, I know you haven't forgiven yourself yet. But the truth is, Jesus has exacting words he would use for each one of us because he's full of grace and truth. You know, if you pray for God to search your heart and bring something up, he'll do it. We all need Jesus' surgical hand in our own lives to become more like Jesus. We're not sure of the kind of tone that Jesus used in that moment, but I'm convinced that his voice was full of grace, not condemnation. We're not used to hearing the truth in love, are we? Read through that uh, read through that verse yourself. Use some inflection. How do you hear God's voice there? I don't think he's talking like your enemy or your abusive boss or the guy behind you on 202 criticizing your driving. 
I don't think it's the last person who yelled at you, who hurt you. I don't believe that's Jesus' voice here. I think it's a voice of grace. I think he says the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Why do I think he said it so lovingly? Because she stayed. And how does she respond? She changes the subject. She says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. She's like, wow, you're a prophet. You're pushing my buttons here. How about the Eagles versus the Saints at 1 o'clock today? Who's going to win? You already know, right? Maybe it's not that quite of a change of subject, but what she's pointing to is she's asking the question, hey, where should we go worship you? Should it be on this mountain or where the Jews say? And Jesus is looking beyond that. Jesus says, you don't realize this, but I have the answer to both your questions. And here's what he says. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. And Jesus says, soon neither of these locations are going to matter. A time is coming when people will worship God the Father in spirit and in truth. And what he's saying is, he goes, it's open to anyone and everyone. Eugene Peterson in this message, in the message translation, he states it like this, and I think it really makes it practical for us. He says, it's who you are and the way you live that count before God. Your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves, in adoration. She, recognizing things were getting really deep, she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So here you have Jesus telling the Samaritan woman that he's the Messiah. It goes on, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Do you see what just happened here? The woman with minimal knowledge, she went and had this fresh experience with Jesus and went and spread that message. Let's look up on verse 39. It says, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You know, isn't it amazing? It wasn't her explanation that caused her belief. It was her explanation that opened her up, opened them up to an experience. You know, we say around here, Jesus is a better experience than explained. And what I love about this story is you see Jesus reach out to someone who was hurting, alone, a woman who needed grace and was able to find it in Jesus. In her village, she wore a scarlet letter to some extent, right? She was rejected by those close to her. Yet, she was seen by Jesus. 
Jesus sees her and refuses to ignore the thing that was hurting her the most. He gave her truth in a loving way, in a surprising way. And what this story shows is her receiving this grace and then extending it towards others. She didn't hold a grudge in her village. She shared this good news with them. Rather than leave her town, she goes there and shares this good news. She goes from being loved by Jesus to loving others like Jesus. Loving others like Jesus, extending grace, is how we enhance community. We take the good things God has instilled in us, and then we're willing to bring it to other people. There's a verse that informs this kind of lifestyle. It's Colossians 3.17. Colossians 3.17 is written by Paul, and it says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. From this story we looked at today, I want to present three challenges for us to carry out in ways to enhance our communities. I say communities because this isn't just a Sunday-only thing or a church community thing. This is how you enhance your family, your friendships, your work community, and yes, even the church here. The first thing I want to challenge you to do is engage with the people in your proximity. I love that Jesus not only saw this woman, he engaged with her. Talk to the kind of person you find yourself near, that you would naturally respond with, why are you talking to me? That's what she did. This isn't about being comfortable. This is about saying a prayer every day that says, God, I want to be available for you. Who can I engage with in a genuine, kind way? It could be at Wawa. It could be at your workplace. The person you find yourself sitting near tomorrow. Do that. Secondly, seek out hurting people in need of grace. If you ask God to bring someone to mind that could use some encouragement, don't be surprised when he does. You know, it's one thing to engage with someone that's not like us, but it's another thing to engage with someone that's hurting. Admittedly, it can be tricky. But this kind of engagement is a skill that can be honed and developed. The reality is the world needs us to look and extend grace and truth to other people, right? When you enter into a space, you can just take a moment to look around the room and see and notice if someone is lonely or isolated or hurting, and they'd be willing to approach them. You know, it's an interesting story. I think it's interesting. My dad, he's a, he has about 60 head of cattle. He still runs a farm. And what he does is he'll take his truck and he'll drive around the entire herd just to, just to look at it and see how they're all doing. He looks for runny eyes or hooves that, are, hooves that may be damaged because those are the two things that typically hurt the herd of cattle. It's a silly illustration, but on one hand, how's the herd doing? If you walk into work and you do a walk around the room or if you go to your school and you look around the classroom or you're wherever your environment is, how do people's eyes look? How's their countenance? And the best thing you can do is honestly lean in and say, how are you doing? Don't always ask somebody, what are you doing? Be willing to say, how are you doing? And then listen intently. And lastly, I would encourage you to develop relationships that are deep enough to share truth. You know, developing relationships grounded in grace and truth, this takes time. Jesus, he was a prophet. He knew everything about the woman because he was God. You don't know everything about everyone's story. And sometimes we jump to conclusions and we're ready to throw truth at them without really understanding how their story is, what life's been like for them. Truth bombs without a relationship, void of grace, they never work out well. Social media tells us that, right? But relationships with grace and truth are the kind of relationships that help us help people become better. Let me take you back to that earlier story about my friend Pat and how this played out in our relationship. You know, after he said, I don't think you deserve the painting, he had a follow-up question. He said, are you doing okay? I then shared with him that I wasn't. We had just moved to a new area. My work was very stressful. Getting the kids integrated into the area was very stressful and things were not going well. I explained to him that I 
wanted my visit to his house to match the effort he had put into that painting. To me, the worst thing I could have done was just show up at his house, grab the painting, jump in the car and drive home. I wanted to hang out like we always did and go on an adventure. To him, not taking the time to grab the photo, even if it was a quick drive-by, was the worst thing I could have done. We both admitted that our expectations weren't met, but it was his willingness to confront me was so healing to our relationship. I immediately said, hey, if I got in the car right now and met halfway, could you do it? And he said, yes. And so a few hours later, we were sitting side by side and I had that painting in my possession. We talked about how thankful we were that we were able to talk this out. And it's interesting, I didn't remember the, the uh, verse that was on the photo, but the one I asked him to paint on was Proverbs 27, 17. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Interesting enough, that's the verse we lived out as we got that photo. Iron sharpening iron, that's not an easy process. That's a difficult process. Iron meeting iron, sharpening each other, causes sparks to fly. And I guess if you want to have meaningful relationships, if you want to be a community that's based on truth and grace, if we're ever going to be able to have like a Mr. Rogers kind of conversation with someone where we're like, hey, I'm so thankful for our friendship because you always push me to be better. To, become, to push me to be more Christ-like in the church community. You offer enough grace where I can feel like I can always come out of hiding and share what I'm struggling with, but you offer me truth that helps me become better and more like Christ. This doesn't come from being a passive friend, does it? No, they require relationships of grace and truth like my friend Pat and I had and as we've grown to. Proverbs 27:17 is iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. I'd like to offer you to take a moment, 10 seconds, literally, to just ask God to bring to someone of mind that you could have a conversation full of grace and truth with, an opportunity to deepen your relationship. And if you can't think of someone, ask God to bring in mind a friend that you could start on that journey with. Take a few seconds now. Thanks for joining us. We hope something you heard today will draw you closer to God and encourage you to know him better. If you found this message podcast helpful, please subscribe, write a review, and consider sharing it with someone else. If there is anything we can do for you, a question we could talk through with you, a prayer we could say on your behalf, or a need you have, please don't hesitate to let us know. We are better together. Please connect with us soon. Take care.